Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Well, why don't you open your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. That'll be our text for this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Pastor Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Well, our text today is the final section in a story that we've been walking through the past few weeks. Peter and John um, go to the temple and they perform a miracle. They heal a lame beggar. And then Peter boldly preaches the gospel to all those who are listening. And he says that it's in the name of Jesus that this lame beggar has been healed. And this uh, severely annoys and angers the Pharisees. They don't like this. And so they take Peter and John, and they arrest them, and they bring them before them. And Peter, at his own trial, mind you, boldly preaches the gospel to these guys and says, hey, it's in the name of Jesus that I healed these guys, this, this lame beggar. And the Pharisees, they can't really say anything like, hey, you healed this guy, and he's walking around. So instead of doing anything, they, realizing they can't arrest him, They threaten them, and they say this. They say, do not speak or preach the name of Jesus ever again. They threaten them. But Peter and John reply in this way. This is a great line. They reply to these threats these ways. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you can judge, for we cannot speak But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they say, we hear your threats, but we're going to keep preaching the gospel. We're going to keep preaching Christ. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see how the church responds to these threats. And I think it's critical that we see how the church responded to persecution Because God's word promises us that if we follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. We're told by the Apostle Peter later in his life in his letters that we should expect opposition to the gospel. And we should expect to be threatened and attacked for preaching Christ. Jesus himself will even say this in Luke chapter 6 verse 22. Jesus tells us, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So persecution will come. That's a fact. It's a fact of the Scriptures. But we need to be prepared for how we respond when that persecution and opposition comes to us. And in our text today, we can draw some, I think, key principles for how the church ought to respond when persecution comes our way. So what does the church do when we are told, stop preaching the message of Christ? Well, hear now the inspired and inerrant word of God. Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they, Peter and John, were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, the church, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the disciples hear from Peter and John about this persecution, this threat that they get from the Jewish leaders. Stop preaching Christ. This is the start in Acts, what we see, the start of sanctioned persecution from the religious authorities against the church. But it's fascinating to notice, what do they do right off the bat? Did you notice what the first thing they did? They pray. They prayed. I mean, before anything is done, before any response is formulated, they prayed. It's clear that the early church believed what Psalm 34, 17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So this morning, we're going to take a look at how they prayed in response to these threats, in response to persecution. How did the early church pray? And the first thing we see is this. They prayed together. They prayed together. One of the first things that you, that you notice in this text when you read it is just the incredible unity and dependency the church found in one another. If you recall, at the end of chapter 2 in Acts, verse 42, it tells us that right after Pentecost, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The, the early church from the start had developed this discipline of coming together for prayer and fellowship and worship and and the preaching of the word. So when the threat of persecution came against them, it was already their instinct to gather and pray. They were used to doing this. In fact, in Acts 12, a couple chapters later, we're going to see a similar, similar occasion happen again. Peter will be arrested for preaching Christ. Peter seems to be a, a troublemaker. <laughs> keeps, getting, keeps preaching Christ, keeps getting arrested. And the church will gather in earnest prayer. And he will be miraculously released and delivered by an angel. And Peter will leave the prison. He'll go to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark, 
And when he arrives, what does he find? The church is praying. The church is praying for him. See what it says in our text again. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. And it says they lifted their voices together to God. Isn't that a beautiful little line? They saw themselves as friends. They saw themselves as family. Who else would we run to in times of struggle and in trial in our lives? Who else? Do we, want, do we run to strangers when hard things are happening in our life? Generally, no. Do we run to acquaintances, people we just kind of know? No, we run to the people closest to us. We, want, we run to our friends, to our family. This lesson was driven home to me this year in a, in a big way. Many of you know in April, I went out to Newfoundland to visit with our Mile One Missions partners, uh, Steve Bray. And we spent several days in St. John's. We toured around. We fellowshiped. There was a conference we put on together. Steve and I got to know each other really, really well and developed a really close friendship. And then for a few days, Steve, myself, Thomas Heidman, uh, and another guy, we went up into Labrador and spent another few days together, just the four of us. And a close bond, a close unity was formed as we were hanging out there. So we had just gotten back to St. John's when I had gotten the call from Sienna that we had lost our baby, that Sienna had, had a miscarriage. And I, was, I remember I was in the back of Mile One Mission's offices in this little room by myself. And I got off the call and I was just, you know, floored and devastated. And so what did I do? I remember the first thing I did after I got off the call with Sienna was, was weep, of course. <laughs> but I called Steve. Because we had just spent so much time together. We had dropped him off at home. He was sick as a dog. So he answered. He's like, hello. And I told him. And we wept together. But most importantly, we prayed together. See, that's what ought to happen when trials and suffering come into our lives. We're driven to one another. It ought to drive us to one another in prayer. So the question that this brings up for us is where will I be found when persecution, when suffering, when trial, when opposition comes? Where will I be found? Do you have close, intimate, spiritually rich friendships that we see like this that we see in the early church? Do you see the church even in this way? I I worry at times uh, for my generation and the generations under, under me, younger generations. When it, when it comes to this specifically, it seems that building relationships, getting connected into the community of faith, seems to be an especially hard thing for the newer generations. And I, I, don't, I think there's a number of factors for this. I think the advent of the internet and cell phones and social media, our whole lives have been spe- spent in this online world. I think that's a factor. But I also think this. I also think that my generation, millennials and underneath, we have lived in the lap of luxury and comfort for, for, for all of our lives. And there, we've inherited so much from our parents and the generations beyond us that there isn't a sense 
of need and urgency that drives us to one another in fellowship and to these kind of healthy spiritual rhythms. And we really seem to not realize how much we need one another. We might say that, but I think it's because we have so much else and so little opposition in this world that we often neglect or trivialize opportunities to gather for prayer and fellowship. And it's often excused under social anxiety or self-care or boundaries or guarding our time. But the enemy loves that. Because when persecution comes, and it will come, so many of us will not have developed the self-discipline, the self-control, to stop blaming anxiety, to get off our couches, to turn off Netflix, to get dressed, to get out of the house, and get into the community of faith to pray and to fellowship And we will be easily tempted to fall away. And Jesus, this is what, Jesus talks about people like this in the parable of the sowers, doesn't he? Matthew 13, 20 to 21 says this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Amen, there's passion. But he has no root in himself. And endures for a little while, But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And I worry about a lot of people in my generation and younger because of this. So we must prioritize the development of deep friendships and relationships in the church. We must prioritize not only being individuals, but being a church that welcomes one another, where we share our homes with one another, where fellowship frequently happens around the dinner table in our homes. Pastor Paul mentioned that verse where Jesus says, this is what I give you when you give up your life to follow me. I will give you these things through the church. The author of Hebrews makes this point as well, very clearly, where he says, "We we ought not to fall into the habit of neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if we ever see the day of state-sanctioned persecution, where churches and Christians are getting notice from the government, you cannot preach Jesus anymore. You can't open your mouth and preach the gospel. No more. You will be arrested. You will be thrown in jail for preaching Jesus then the first action of the church ought to be to come together and to pray with one another, to pray with our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, says this, such a great line, prayer is a shelter to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to the devil, there is nothing that renders the devil's plots as fruitless as prayer. And that's what we see here. The church believed that, they prayed together, and they gathered. But not only that, we see, secondly, what they prayed. They prayed from the Word of God. 
we see in this text that the very content of the prayer is being guided and educated by the Scriptures. There's a text that's referenced in our passage today, and it's Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a psalm where David speaks about how the kings of the world oppose God and his rule and will oppose the rule of his anointed son, but how God is also going to give the nations to his son in victory. And notice how it says that God spoke through the mouth of our father David, verse 25, your servant by the Holy Spirit. So the early church had begun to recognize and and see that Psalm 2 was not simply written by David about opposition to his reign alone, but that David was prophesying. He was, he was prophesying about the, through the Holy Spirit about the opposition that God's anointed one, his son, his, David's greater son, would experience. So they knew because of Psalm 2, because of the Scriptures, they understood, they believed that opposition was coming against them. And they knew because of Psalm 2 not to expect ease in following Christ. Not to expect ease in following an anointed one against whom the nations raged. They understood that if the Messiah was opposed, then they would be opposed as well. Daryl Bach, a commentator, says here on this passage, the early believers also recognized that their rejection was something to be anticipated and they accept it with praise. God said that there would be people who would want nothing to do with his anointed and would reject him, failing to recognize him. And so knowing the truth of the scriptures, they prayed that truth together. You know, often when we pray, we want to know, is God going to hear my prayer? Is God going to respond in the way that I want him to my prayer? We often ask that. Well, one certain way to know that God is going to grant our requests is when we pray God's word and his promises. This is what Jesus is getting at in John 15, verse 7, where he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So when we abide in God's word, when we know God's word and it dwells within us richly and deeply and we saturate our prayers with God's word and his promises, we know that God will be faithful to his own words and promises. And so knowing the scriptures allowed the early church to interpret what was even happening in that very moment. Look at Verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So as they prayed, they were reflecting on, on the actions taken against Jesus, on the opposition that he encountered. 
And then they reminded themselves, based on the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures, that they were in the center of God's plan, guided by his all-powerful hand and the sovereignty of God, his all-knowing, all-controlling power is seen here in this prayer. In verse 24, they address God as sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then understanding God's total power and control over all things, they see that the rejection of Christ and then the rejection of the message that Peter preached and John had preached was all part of God's plan. I, Howard Marshall, commenting on this verse, hits the nail on the head here. Listen to this. It was this sovereign Lord who had prophesied in the Psalms the fruitless efforts of the rulers of the world to rebel against him and the Messiah. The unspoken thought is quite clearly that it is futile for men to scheme against a God who not only created the whole universe, but who even foresaw their scheming. All of our trials, all of the hardships in our lives, all of the opposition that comes against the church, none of it happens outside of the purposes and the plans of the same sovereign Lord who made everything. And so the point is this, the early church found comfort in God's power and plan when persecution came. And before any decision, before any action, before any response, they burrowed themselves deep, deep into the truth of God's word. Oh, how we need to do the same in times of fear. You know, when we see glimpses of hardship or persecution or opposition or threat, I think it's all too often that our initial response is to react with fear, with anger, and frustration. But I think that ultimately reveals a little about our theology and about what we believe about the Scriptures. And that differs very dramatically from what the early church believed. And I think we don't respond to those hardships and those trials and those persecutions with prayer and Bible-believing faith, because I think at the end of the day, ultimately, we're sadly still surprised by opposition. We're sadly still caught off guard when persecution or trial or hardship comes. Perhaps it's our overabundance of wealth and comfort. Perhaps, you know, the saying, soft times create soft people. But often the reason we, we respond so poorly to threats and to opposition and to people pushing back on us when we share the gospel is because we truly don't know what the scriptures say about persecution and about hardship. We're lacking a biblical understanding that the early church had about what's going on. The apostle Peter, years later in his life, will write this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. 
but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Do you hear that? That's the mindset we should have as Christians when hardship and persecution and opposition comes our way. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be caught off guard. We should go, yep, saw that coming. I knew that was going to come one day. And in fact, Peter says we should rejoice. Persecution is proof of our position. It's an assurance of our adoption as God's people. So when persecution comes, instead of freaking out, instead of getting angry, instead of screaming and yelling, we pray, God, I know, I know that your word says that this world rejected Jesus and it's going to reject his people. I know that the nations oppose David, the nations oppose Jesus, they oppose the early church, and therefore they're going to oppose us. But your word also says that you're going to give the nations to Jesus in victory. So God, thank you. Thank you that that I am yours. And thank you that Jesus is going to be victorious. That's what we pray. That's how we respond. Prayer saturated with the scriptures and the truth of God. Thomas Watson, 17th century Puritan, says this. The promises of God, listen to this, are growing in the paradise of Scripture. Meditation, like a bee, sucks the sweetness out of them. The promises of God are no use or comfort to us until they are meditated on. That's what the early church did. They prayed together and they prayed rooting, centering, refocusing prayers that were educated and that were instructed by the word of God and a deep trust in his powerful and sovereign will. Thirdly, we see that they prayed for power from God. They prayed for power from God. Look at verse 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After praying what God's words said about their context, then they ask this powerful God for one thing. They ask him for power. They ask him for boldness to keep preaching Jesus and that more miracles would be done to confirm the gospel that they preached. It's, it's kind of it's interesting to notice what they don't pray for. They don't pray for deliverance. They could have. They don't pray for a meteorite to fall on their enemies. They don't pray that God would give them a nuanced, clever way to adjust the message so that they could reach people. They don't pray that the message would become more palatable. 
They pray for boldness. They pray for courage to keep preaching Jesus. I, I wonder what the average North American evangelical Christian would pray if state-sanctioned persecution came. What would you pray for tomorrow? What would you pray for if tomorrow the government said you can't share Jesus anymore? What would you pray? It's an important question. And the answer is even more important. The early church didn't ask God to deliver them from persecution. They asked God for power so that they wouldn't shrink back in fear from these threats, but continue in faith and courage. And this isn't the only time they pray this. Paul himself, later, writing to the Ephesians, will pray for the same thing. He'll ask for the same prayers. He asks them to pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Prayers for boldness. Daryl Bach, again, says here, In sum, this prayer is an expression of complete dependence on God, a recognition of his sovereignty, and a call for God's justice and oversight in the midst of opposition, for an enablement of mission, and for the working of his power to show that God is behind the preaching of the name of Jesus in healing and signs. And look at what happens. Look what happens when they pray this prayer. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In a powerful sign, the entire house shakes where they're praying. Things are rattling, falling off shelves as they're praying for boldness and courage and power. I, Howard Marshall, again, helps us understand this miraculous event. He says, this was one of the signs which indicated a theophany in the Old Testament, and it would have been regarded as indicating a divine response to prayer. The point is, then, that God signified that he was present and he would answer the prayer. So this moment of shaking and the house shaking is God saying to them, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your cries. And your prayers have been answered. And the result of this powerful sign is immediate. The church believed that God had heard them, that God was with them, that God was for them, and that God would go with them. And they kept preaching Christ boldly. In fact, we're going to read in the next chapter... In Acts 5, this, that many signs and wonders were regularly done by the, among the people by the hands of the apostles. And let, verse four, 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. They continued to preach with boldness. And many signs and wonders accompanied that preaching. And the church grew, and it grew, and it grew. 
persecution could not stop the power of God at work in his people. It could not stop it then, and it cannot stop it today. Church, listen, Cornerstone. There is boldness, there is confidence, there is power for us, even in the face of opposition and persecution. We should not let cultural norms or Canadian niceness ever prevent us or even use it as an excuse to allow fear and timidity to prevent us from sharing Christ boldly. Paul tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has, not, God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's the spirit that we have within us, a powerful spirit, a loving spirit, a spirit that allows us to be self-controlled in the face of fear and persecution. And all we need to do is reach out with brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer and ask for it. And this is the point of the text this morning. Prayer is the primary Christian response to persecution, to opposition, to trial. When persecution came, it drove them together in prayer. It drove them deeper into the scriptures and they prayed those truths And it comforted them, and that led them, because of those truths, to preach, God, just give us more boldness. Give us more courage so that we can preach Christ. And so the glaring question that flows from this text is quite convicting. How will we, how will you, how will I respond in the face of fierce persecution and opposition? This passage doesn't only describe what happened to the early church, but I think it prescribes what we ought to do when persecution and trial and hardship comes our way. And I think we need to digest this deep down because I think this text brings a very strong indictment on the modern church. See, in recent years, what we've seen is when North American evangelicals get a whiff of what they perceive as persecution, the first response is generally not prayer. It's protest. It's reaction. Sure, we might pray eventually. Eventually we might pray. We might eventually preach, hey, church, we should pray. Eventually we'll get there. But it's the instinct That's the issue. The instinct isn't prayer. Gather together. Pray. It's anger. It's reaction. But that's not what we see in the early church. That wasn't their response. Listen to John Calvin and what he says on this text. The disciples of Christ do not jest, do not joke when they hear that their enemies do threaten them so sore and press so sore upon them as careless and sluggish men do. But being touched with fear, they fly to seek help at the hands of God. And again, they are not terrified. 
Neither yet do they conceive any immoderate fear, but crave of God invincible constancy with right godly petitions. See, Calvin points out that the church did not receive this threat with either dismissiveness and apathy or with anger and aggression. They responded by running to God and asking for help. They run to God and they ask him for courage to stand firm and to keep preaching. But for many Christians and many of us, Instead of, as Calvin says, flying to seek help at the hands of God, what do we do? Instead of running to God with one another in prayer, when perceived or actual persecution comes, many Christians instead get angry, speak out against those who would seek to persecute us. We rant, we we almost do everything else but what we see in this text, get together and pray first. If we truly believed God's word, that what we need is not to be bailed out, but we need more boldness. If we truly believe that the answer to persecution was more preaching, then we would engage in less posting, less posturing, less paranoia, and more prayer. So brothers and sisters, here's the question. When, pers- when persecution, cultural opposition, or threat falls upon you and I, will we be found alone or will we fly to seek power and help from the hands of God with brothers and sisters in prayer? We need these basic fundamental patterns, these basic disciplines of word, worship, fellowship, prayer, to meet head-on the storms of opposition that will assuredly come. we got to get these things down now. The world might attempt to control what we say. The culture might turn against us, and the government may one day come and say, you can't preach Jesus. There will be laws, it could happen, that ban preaching Christ. But when we trust the scriptures, when we believe them, when we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16, that the spirit of God is the one who gives life, John 6.63, that God is for us and no one can stand against us, 1 Corinthians 1.18, sorry, Romans 8.31, and that the gospel is foolishness to some, but to others, it's the very power of God for salvation, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Those theological truths ought to produce the fruit of confidence and boldness within us. We can share Christ with those we know, with kindness, with gentleness, but with conviction and boldness. And we can trust that God's word will accomplish what it sets out to, regardless of the cost. So this is going to land on us differently, depending on who you are here this morning. Maybe you're being mocked relentlessly at your work or at school 
for your faith in Christ and for sharing Christ? How will you respond? Maybe you're in an environment where the expectation is that you jettison all of your Christian beliefs and foundational beliefs and compromise on everything that the Scriptures say. How do you respond? Do we attack back? Do we fall back in fear and change the message? Or do we, like the early church, run to the community of faith, the Word of God, for prayer and encouragement? When hostility comes against us, when we're threatened to be silent, or when we are tempted to edit the message of the gospel for fear of rejection, we can stand strong together. Not in arrogance, not in anger or aggression, and not in loud outcries of injustice, but in prayerful humility and bold preaching. The Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what the church does when the heat gets turned up. We refuse to rely on cunning or underhanded means. We don't edit the message. We don't shy away. We haven't been given a spirit of fear. Instead, we pray together, we trust God's word, and we seek the power of God that we would continue to preach boldly. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement of this text and the reminder that we need. Lord, it is so easy to take these things for granted, these opportunities to come together, to pray, to sing, to hear from your word, to be encouraged. It's so easy to neglect gathering together in our homes for fellowship throughout the week and for small group and study and prayer. It is so easy to take this for granted until one day it is threatened and opposed. Oh Lord, may we hear, may we heed your word for us today. May we fly to your hands for help. May we run to one another for prayer, for encouragement. And Lord, would you fill us in this room with boldness? There are people here who are going through hard situations in their work, in their families. Christmas time is going to offer all kinds of awkward opportunities where maybe we're the only people in that gathering who know Jesus. Lord, may you use us. May you fill us with boldness that people may see that people may trust and believe in the gospel message we preach, that they may come to know you. Lord, give us the help we need. It comes from you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.